Our Father, we thank you for the fact that your Holy Spirit empowers us to live the life that you have called us to live through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the book called the Bible, which gives us the guidelines that uh, teaches us who you are, teaches us the nature and the attributes of God, helps us to understand what it is to be Christ-like and to live as Christians. Father, I pray that we will be drawn closer to you through our study of your word. We ask that your spirit will be our strength and guide. We know, Lord, that the word of God promises that where two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst, so we know you're here this morning. And we pray your special touch and blessing on each individual life. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy. And as we come to the end of this century and this millennium, we look forward to what it is you will do in the years ahead to bring glory to your name and to, grow, and to expand the kingdom of God. And Father, we desire to be a part in that, to, to play the role that you've called us to play. So prepare our hearts according to your divine plan in Jesus' name. Amen. After the conquest of Canaan, Israel, you remember, obeyed the Lord during the life of Joshua. And the scripture says, even during the time of those that had helped Joshua conquer the land, the elders of that particular time. So we don't know how long a period that was, probably 10, 20 years at least. But, but then as time passed, Israel became seduced into chasing after the gods of the Canaanites that surrounded them and that lived within the body of Israel. It seems that because of this apostasy, that God began a series of scourges, of disciplines, whatever you want to call it, whereby he drew Israel back to himself. And the book of Judges is the story of God's mercy, of God's compassion, of God's insistence on, on his people walking in his way. One of the things you discover about God is he does not accept compromise. We live in a world of compromise. We live in a world of pluralism where everybody's right and nobody's wrong. And, you know, whatever you feel like, it's okay to do. But, but that is not the God of the Bible. And, and that is not how we as Christians must live. The whole book of Judges teaches us that God draws his people back to himself, that they will live in obedience to his word. We cannot live as Christians. Israel could not live as his people in disobedience to his word. And so we see that we already looked at the discipline or the scourge that came under the leadership of this king from Aram Naharim, translated as Mesopotamia in the Bible, but uh, more Aram of the, of the rivers. Probably, as I mentioned to you at that time, either from Matani, which was in the upper Euphrates area, or from Syria itself, came this king with his armies, and, and for a period of time, they subjected Israel to oppression. And then God raised up Othniel, the uh, nephew of Caleb, who delivered Israel. And then they walked in the ways of God for a while again, and then they turned away in another generation, and God raised up the Moabites to become oppressors. And then Ehud came along to be the deliverer. Today, as we look at the last verse of the third chapter, we come to the third of the Shofat or the Shofatim. In the 31st verse of chapter 3 of Judges, we read, And after him, that is after Ehud, came Shamgar, the son of Anath, 
who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. As I mentioned before, there are 12 judges mentioned in, in the book of Judges. And what Shamgar has the distinct position of being the one with the least about, amount of information about him, the briefest in terms of reference to this man and to his judgeship. There, there had been a period, according to the uh, a previous verse, verse 30 of, of Judges 3, a period of 80 years of peace that came to Israel, at least to the eastern part of Israel, after the victory of Ehud over the Moabites and their allies. But on the western flank, all was not well. On the western flank were the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were a people who were not native to the area. The Philistines came to the area maybe just before, just after Israel arrived. That's still not known for sure exactly when the Philistines arrived. There are references to Philistines earlier in, as early as the book of Genesis, which would seem to indicate that the Philistines arrived considerably before Israel to occupy the land. The Philistines were a people who were Indo-European. They were not at all related to Israel. The Israel Israelis, of course, were Shemites or Semites, whereas the Philistines were Indo-European uh, speakers. Where they came from is not positively known, but it is believed that they came out of Asia Minor, what is today known as Turkey. One of the things that's important for us to try to straighten out when we look at the scripture is to remember that the geography that we know today is not the geography of the time 3,500 years ago. And we call that country Turkey, and we think of the people who live there as Turks, but they are modern people who entered the land. The Turks have only been in Turkey for less than a thousand years. Uh, prior to that were many other peoples, most of them non-Turkish, having nothing to do with the Turks ethnically, linguistically, or any other way, because the Turks came out of Central Asia. Most of the inhabitants of Turkey were people who came out of the European scope. In fact, in the heart of Turkey, just before the time of Christ, lived Celts. And of course, you know, the Celts had their homeland over in the Swiss-German area and had spread all the way from Ireland to Gaul or Galatia, even in the Roman time. And so the Philistines probably had their heritage back amongst the Indo-European peoples who were native to the, the broader European area. They originally attacked Egypt, but were repulsed by Egypt, and so they settled down on a coast that was a little more open and, and easily uh, occupied. And so that's when they came into contact with the, with the Israelites. The Philistines were an iron-using people. They had knowledge of the use of iron, which they apparently picked up from the Hittites, whose empire was in Asia Minor. And so this gave them an advantage, although they were relatively few in number, uh, in any military confrontation. So here we have on the western flank of the country, down on the coast, a people who were uh, at odds with the Israelites. Their territory that they occupied extended from Gaza in the south all the way to Joppa in the north. Now Joppa is on the southern outskirts of modern Tel Aviv. So from just south of Tel Aviv all the way down to, the, to Gaza was the coastal area occupied by the Philistines. They largely stayed on the coast five major cities that they occupied and the surrounding territory. So this was the land of the Philistines, which became known as Philistia. And later on in the Roman times, the Romans would commemorate the Philistines by naming the whole country Philistina or Palestine, as uh, 
we would later come to know it. Sometime after the victory of Ehud over the Moabites, but before the story of Deborah and Barak, the Philistines created trouble for the tribe of Judah. If you have the little map that I gave to you a while back, here, here's the land here, and over here on the coast, right down here, this is where the land of the Philistines was located, okay? So the very south east coast. We'll look at this map again later uh, because an uh, important battle will be fought right up in here in the story of Deborah and Barak. Now, how long were the Philistines troublesome? We, we don't know. We know very little about the whole Shamgar episode. I didn't count the words in the verse, but it's not a very long verse. And that's really virtually all the information we have about this man Shamgar and his time. All we are told is that God raised up Shamgar. So obviously God knew Shamgar and raised him up to be a judge. We're told that he was the son of Anath and that his weapon was an ox goad. Now, an ox goad was a long, pointed hardwood stick, which was usually metal-tipped. And it was used for exactly that, to goad the oxen, you know, keep them going, stick them in the leg, and, and they'll keep going along. Well, what is interesting about this is we have to understand that this for Shamgar had to be a weapon of choice. He had to choose this to be his weapon because... After he killed his first few Philistines, he would have had available to him the iron swords and the iron spears of the people that he killed, the weapons of, of the enemy. So, you know, if he just used the ox goad because it's all he had at hand at the moment, he could have switched to his swords and spears after that had he wanted to. But obviously, he was good at it. Sort of like David with his sling, you know. Why trade a sling for a sword and a spear if you can knock off a giant at a hundred paces, you know with your little rock, or big rock, whatever it was he threw. And so obviously Shamgar had developed a, a considerable skill with this, with this ox goad. And he was able to slaughter 600 Philistines. Now, I think we have to understand when the scripture says 600 Philistines, it does not mean that he slaughtered women and children. The Bible does not call it that way. If it says 600 Philistines, it means men. And it almost always under these circumstances refers to warriors. So we're talking about a man who slew 600 Philistine warriors. Sort of a prefiguring of Samson in some ways. I think, however, what we must understand is that the 600 Philistines were a lifetime total for Shamgar. It wasn't like he went out one day and, and was faced 600 to 1 and he slaughtered 600. You know, here I am, victor over 600. I, I think it was over a period of time that he slew these 600 individuals. Now, Shamgar's name is mentioned two times in Scripture. One in this passage, and the other time is in this fifth chapter, the sixth verse, where it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, highways, the highways were deserted, and travelers went by roundabout ways. What does that mean? Well, first of all, that's poetry. But I think it implies that the presence of the Philistines impeded the travel and trade of the tribe of Judah, particularly. Because the tribe of Judah was butted up right against the Philistines. You know, Judah sat right here, Philistines over here, and of course the Dead Sea on this side. And so they were sandwiched in between the Philistines and the Dead Sea. 
And so if the Philistines were hostile, this cut off their trade with the coast and any north-south trade through that area because the main highway, the Via Maris, uh, came right down through this coastal region, right down through the plain of Sharon up here in the plain of Philistia. And so this would greatly interfere with the, the trade and the travel of the tribe of Judah. Now, we're told that he was the son of Anath. Does that mean anything to us? Well, really not much. All we know is that near the city of Hebron was a small village by the name of Beth Anath, which means the house of Anath. And most uh, scholars believe that probably means that Shamgar came from that town because it was the house of Anath, his father and, or his ancestor, whatever it was. And so he was from the tribe of Judah, which makes a lot of sense given the location and, uh, of Philistia and Judah. And it was probably a battle primarily between Judah and Philistia. Not all of Israel was involved. So the life of Shamgar. <laughs> we don't know if he had a wife. We don't know if he had children. We don't know how long he did this. We don't know if he judged. We don't know anything except this brief little statement. Someday it'll be great to talk to Shamgar, you know, and say, what was it really all about here? You know, there's not much there about you. But you know, to have your name mentioned in Scripture at all, in a, in a good light, I wouldn't want to be Jezebel, for example, is a wonderful thing, uh, of course. Moving on into the fourth chapter, we come to a, a far more developed story even though we don't know a great deal about either Deborah or Barak, we, we do have two whole chapters dedicated to the salvation of Israel that occurred under these two people. So let's read the first three verses of chapter 4. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned at Hatzor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. One generation may learn its lesson by suffering under the oppression that God brought because of their apostasy and experiencing the deliverance that God brought, as he did under Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. But it seems that the next generation has to learn it all over again the hard way. It's kind of the frustration that parents have in trying to teach their children, particularly when the children are like between 12 and 18, trying to teach them by word how to avoid trouble, which they seem to insist to learn only by doing rather than hearing. And so it seems to be the story for the nation of Israel. The threat of the Mesopotamians or the Ahram Naharimians, uh, the, the people under Kushan Rishathim, was passed. The threat of Moab and, and the allies was passed. Uh, the story of Othniel and the story of Ehud had kind of faded into, you know, stories that were told around the fire at night of, of heroes of the past. It, it didn't seem to be relevant anymore. And so Israel, we're told, again turns to paganism. They turn to worship. I mean, it's as if God was sounding a large gong saying, I told you that if you don't get rid of the Canaanites, you will be drawn to their ways and to their worship. But Israel, oh, well, we'll be okay. You know, it's all right. Uh, don't get uptight. And, and this is exactly what happens. They turn again to the ways of the pagan Canaanites. 
And we've already developed as, you know, the reasons why. And I think most of us can really understand the reasons why. We, we can understand why people are drawn into cults, because cults offer something often more tangible. But faith in God is faith in a totally intangible being who we believe to exist because we read it in his word. And we know to exist largely because of the answers to prayer that we receive. But if we are not believers, we don't have those answers to prayer. So there is no validation. Thomas Aquinas tried to prove the existence of God. But most will argue that you really can't prove the existence of God. You know, in, in, in tangible ways, empirically. You can't prove the existence of God. It has to be accepted by faith. And so when Israel is confronted by, by deities you can see and deities you can touch and all the sensual aspect of the worship of the Canaanite gods, they were sucked into, into that practice. I think what it does is it demonstrates the reality of the natural proclivity of mankind to folly. The natural way of man is foolish. It's like this morning on the way to church this morning, there was a frame around the uh, license plate and it said, National Atheist Day, April 1st. <laughs> and you know, I think, you know, we, we use the phrase, but for the grace of God, there go I, you know. And that's not really a joke. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be walking in foolish ways, as almost all the world does, chasing after the things of the flesh, which destroy, not only destroy the body, but destroy the whole being, the soul. So what does God do? Again, he brings a scourge. He's not going to just say, oh, well, Israel's doing it again. I guess I'll better go find another people somewhere, or maybe I better create a new planet and start all over again. No, God doesn't do that. God sticks with his plan. God perseveres. God is long-suffering. And so God brings another scourge upon Israel. One of the things we discover about God through his word is that he is immutable. That is, he is unchanging and that his word is eternal, and that he is relentless in his pursuit of his people. God relentlessly pursues you. God relentlessly pursues me. God is not going to just let us go in our way and foolishly ignore him. He will bring into our lives whatever it takes to give us the cold smack upside the head so that we wake up. And that is what he is doing for Israel here. One of the things that God will not do, as I emphasized at the beginning, is God will not compromise. He will not share worship with other so-called gods. You can't worship God and mammon. It just keeps reminding us, I, I think, of Paul's situation there in Athens in Acts chapter 17 where he, he went to the Athenians and said, you guys are very, very religious people, you know, all these gods are everywhere, but you do have, you do have that altar in case you missed one, <laughs> you know, you're hedging all your bets here, to the God that you don't know, and I'm here to tell you about the unknown God. Israel found the Lord to be as faithful in his follow-through on his warnings as he was on his blessings. In the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, we won't turn there, but in that chapter, God spells it out very clearly. If the people of God obeyed him, they would crush their enemies. If the people of God disobeyed him, their enemies would crush them. Pretty simple. 
pretty clear. So they have turned against God again. And so he brings another oppressor. The purpose is, of course, to bring Israel to its spiritual senses, so to speak. And so he puts them under the heel of Jabin, king of Hazor. Now, interestingly enough, that name should not sound unfamiliar to you if you remember our study of the book of Joshua. First of all, let me highlight the fact that Hatzor was located right up in here. It was located 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, four miles west of the Jordan River, right smack on the main highway north-south between Egypt and Mesopotamia, at a crossroads that was a, an important crossroads. So it was at the four corners, if you will, and as a result, Hatzor grew to be, during the time prior to David and Solomon, Hatzor was the largest and most powerful city in the entire land of Canaan. When Joshua destroyed Hatzor, it was the single largest and most powerful city in all of Canaan. I mean, Jerusalem was nothing compared to Hatzor. Jericho was small compared to Hatzor. None of the other cities compared to Hatzor. Um, archaeologists have been digging there for a good part of this century. Uh, most of the work has been done by Yigdal Yadin. And what they have discovered there is that, yes, the top of the tell at Hatzor is maybe 25 or 30 acres. But they've discovered that the city went down this, the tail, tell into the vast plain around, and that at its height, Hatzor was a city of 180 acres. Now, to you and to me, you say, I know people who have 180 acres on their farm. You know, what's the big deal here? Well, the big deal is that Jerusalem, at the time of David and Solomon, was probably not more than 25 acres. And this was 180 acres. The outer walls surrounding the 180 acres, the inner walls, of course, surrounding the top of the tell, the citadel, the Acropolis, whatever you want to call it, where the original city was located. A city of 40,000 people. Now, to us today, we don't normally crowd 40,000 people, 180 acres, it's less than downtown Manhattan or someplace like that where we put them on one acre. Vertical. <laughs> but for these ancient people, that was a big city. In fact, Hatzor is just about the only significant city in Canaan mentioned in texts of other great peoples, particularly those in Mesopotamia. So this was a very, very important city. And we've already read about it in the book of Joshua. Jabin had formed a northern confederacy against the invading Israelites. And Joshua had done battle with Jabin and his confederacy at the waters of Merom in central Galilee. Let me just turn back to the book of Joshua for a second to the 11th chapter. In verse 10, we read this, uh, Joshua 11:10. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword. That usually means killed him. For Hatzor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. Verse 13, however, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, their tells, except Hatzor alone, which Joshua burned. So, Jabin has been slaughtered and his city burned. So what are Jabin and Hatzor doing here again? How, you know, is this a return from the dead? Is this deja vu? What, what is this? Well, as we have noted over and over again in Joshua and in the book of Judges, Israel did not drive out all the Canaanites. She accommodated to numerous little enclaves of Canaanites within the land. 
And many of these Canaanites regrouped and refortified strategic sites, one of them being Hatzor. So the Canaanites who had been defeated now regather at Hatzor, refortify the upper city, not the lower city, but the upper city, the Acropolis area, about 25 or 30 acres. They rewalled that. And of course, it continued to be known as Hatzor. And so here they have, and this occurs when? When Israel is dallying around in Canaan paganism. The Israelites, you know, turned away from their God or chasing the pagan God. So what does it matter to them if the Canaanites are fortifying a city? They're their friends. They're their allies. Oh, yes? Not really. Now, the name Jabin. The name Jabin means one who perceives. Well, you could understand quickly, I think, from that, that that very well could be a title. And it probably was a title, like Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh was, uh, Pharaoh, the word Pharaoh meant he who lived in the great house, the palace, one who perceives. So this was undoubtedly a title and not a personal name. Oh, it, it's possible that this was like Jabin II or Jabin III or Jabin IV, and, and you know, it, it, it could have been a name. But because of the meaning of it, it's most likely a title. And so we're just simply saying that the king of Hatzor has now uh, begun to oppress uh, Israel. So here we have a revived Canaanite fortified center ruled by a man whose title is the same as that that they had already defeated a hundred years before. This account, however, is not primarily about Jabin. It is primarily about a man whose name is Sisera. Sisera is the commander of Jabin's armed forces. And the implication of this passage is that Sisera was the real oppressor of Israel and that Jabin probably was nothing more than a figurehead ruling over whom Sisera manipulated like a marionette because Sisera was the commander of the armed forces there. Now what is interesting is that scholars, uh, Jewish scholars will tell you Sisera is not a Canaanite name that Sisera is foreign to, to Israel or Canaan in terms of a name. It has a non-Canaan origin. Nobody knows for sure exactly the origin, but it is believed possibly to be Hurrian. And I've mentioned the Hurrians before. Kushan Rishathaim may have come from Matani. Matani was a city whose principal city was Mari, and the people are thought to have been Hurrians, who are mentioned uh, in the scripture uh, from time to time as Horites. And that's a possible origin for, for this particular individual. And he came apparently as a mercenary commander. He was hired by Jabin to uh, control Jabin's territory for him, to defend it for him, to oppress Israel for him. So Jabin is the point man. <laughs> He's the one that Israel hates because he is the one who is actually carrying out the oppression over the land of Israel. His hometown is said in this passage to be Herosheth Hagoim. That's a strange name, by the way, because Hagoim, the, the last part of it, means of the Gentiles. But you know, really, the word Gentile is not something that crops up much this early in Hebrew history. Gentile is more of a word that comes along when you actually have the word Jew. These people are not Jews. They're Hebrews, they're Israelites. You don't have Jews until you have the emergence of the land of Judah as the dominant 
land and being carried off into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and so it, it could be translated as foreigners, of the foreigners. The word herosheth seems to be rooted in another Hebrew word that means artisans. So it seems that the name of the city is uh, City of Foreign Artisans, which is very interesting here because Sisera is a foreigner and he's in command at this town. This seems to be the military headquarters, although Hatzor is way up in the north. Hatzor is over here. Herosheth is located right about in here. This is Mount Carmel right here. And it's just to the east of Mount Carmel in the valley there, the Valley of Jezreel. That's the believed location of, uh, of Herosheth. And so here it's very, it's very possible that this city was given this name by the Hebrews, by the Israelis, because it was the center of these foreign oppressors. Now, the passage emphasizes that the heart of Sisera's military strength was 900 iron chariots. The question that would come to mind, now most of us, we just read over that and we're used to these numbers in the Old Testament, so we don't even think about it. But 900 iron chariots, that's a lot of chariots. Especially for a little bitty city-state called Hatzor. Probably within the tell of Hatzor at the top, within the walls, there couldn't have been more than five or 10,000 people. So how could such a kingdom afford such a mighty force? Uh, I was thinking about this, and I, I thought, now, what, what would this be comparable to? And I thought, you know, it'd be like the, the state of Luxembourg. Are you, are you familiar with Luxembourg? It'd be like the state of Luxembourg having an army with 900 M60 uh, uh, um, Abrams tanks. You know, these are the top line, first class, most powerful tanks in the world. 900 of them. I mean, Luxembourg only has 4,000 people living. It's only 1,000 square miles. I mean, it's as small as Rhode Island in terms of area. This is a mighty army, a mighty striking force. A, a much larger nation, such as Egypt, might not have many more than that. So the question is, where did he get such a force? Well, Josephus throws a little insight into this when he says that the army, that Jabin's army, was predominantly mercenary. Aha! Now we see Jabin does not have an army of Canaanites that is here fighting to possess the land, but he has hired an army to fight on his behalf. Well, you know, Sisera, probably a willing commander, he probably brought the 900 chariots with him from, from Matani or some other place, and, and all the ground troops that were with him, or uh, infantry that were with him, probably many, many thousands. How did Jabin afford this? Well, you know, if you follow the thinking here, I, I think what we discover is that Jabin imposed annual tribute on Israel as its oppressor and therefore used the annual tribute to pay for the mercenary army. So Israel was paying for its own oppression. That would be very logical. That is how God operates to teach us that we must trust in him. Well, the position for the Israelites was hopeless, and particularly in the north. We don't know how far south this extends because nowhere in this whole story, in the fourth and fifth chapter, are the tribes of, is the tribe of Judah ever mentioned, which was the largest single tribe. So who knows, maybe they're still fooling around with the Shamgar thing uh, when, when this thing was going on in, in the north. Again, we have to realize that during the, through the book of Judges, 
that each of the 12 deliverers probably did not deliver all of Israel at one time. Probably only a portion of Israel was involved in each, not necessarily all of these stories, uh, was that true? But at least that seems to be for, for many of them. So this is in the north. Tribes as far south as Dan and Benjamin are mentioned. So that would bring us clear down to the middle of the country. So from the middle all the way to the north, at least that much of the land was under the oppression of Jabin and Sisera. And the scripture tells us it was severe oppression. And it lasted for 20 years. I don't think most of us can begin to comprehend things of that length of time. We, we're accustomed to things happening, you know, and it's over with. Uh, I mean, World War II, the greatest war of all of history, involved the United States for four years. Now, it involved China for, uh, you know, eight years, but it involved the United States for only four years. If you go back in history to the um, late Middle Ages going into the modern era, there was a period of time in the 14th and 15th century when Europe was involved in what is called the 100 Years War. Now, can you imagine a 100 Years War? Probably not, and neither could the Europeans at that time because it was actually 116 years long, but it only involved two countries, England and France, and only parts of them. In fact, England only in invading France. None of the fighting ever occurred in England. And so it was a very small-scale thing. But here we have 20 years these people are oppressed by this, this Sisera guy and forced to pay for their own oppression. The situation was worse than it had been under any oppression prior to this, to this moment. So to whom could Israel turn? There was no one they could turn to but God alone. You see, God will back us into the corner, if necessary, where we have nowhere to go but to him. Josephus shows uh, some interesting insight here. He says this, So they continued to undergo that hardship for 20 years. God was willing, hereby the more, to subdue their obstinacy and ingratitude. Notice, God was willing. Now, you know, who, who can say what the real spiritual condition of Josephus was? But at least he had a concept of the fact that we, we always think in the terms, God is not willing that any should perish. God wills these good things. But you have to realize that God wills hard things too to subdue their obstinacy and ingratitude towards himself. So when at length they were become penitent, when at length they were become penitent and were so wise as to learn that their calamities arose from their contempt of God's laws, they besought Deborah to pray to God to take pity on them and not overlook them now that they were already ruined by the Canaanites. Well, let's look at the next uh, uh, few verses here. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at this time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, of the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and, mar uh, and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulon. 
and I will draw out to you Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops, to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hands. Then Barak said to her, I will go, if you will go with me, then I will go. If you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. This is a very wonderful passage. And it's a passage that throws light on many things. What we find in this passage is a very unusual term in verse 4. It says, Deborah was a Nebiah prophetess. Now, no matter how anybody tries to downplay this, Nebiah was the feminine version of Nabi, which is the official word for a prophet in Israel. So she wasn't some, you know, possible prophetess. She was a female prophet, period. No way to gainsay that. What is interesting about her name is that her name was Deborah, which means honeybee. I'm sure that's why we named our oldest daughter Deborah. Us too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> In, in the case of our oldest daughter, it has applied in many ways because she is, she is a very busy person. <laughs> and she's very handicraft-oriented, and she's always sewing and making things uh, like that. She does a very good job, too. But we didn't know that, of course, when we named her. Now, what is interesting is that dozens of prophets are named in Scripture, but very few prophetesses. God ordained that males generally should exercise political and spiritual leadership among his people. But he did not exclude women categorically. Occasionally, as in the case of Deborah, he raised up a woman to provide, in this case, both political and spiritual leadership in Israel. In addition to Deborah, there are four other prophetesses mentioned in the Old Testament. The first ever mentioned was Miriam. And back in Exodus 15, Miriam is called a Nabiah, a prophetess. And she went out with the tambourines and cymbals to sing. Huldah, the wife of Shalom, in the days of Josiah, was a godly prophetess who guided the leadership of Israel. In Nehemiah, there was an anti-prophetess, I guess you could say, by the name of Nodiah, who was a false prophetess, but the same word is used. And lastly, Isaiah refers to his wife as the prophetess. Good combination, huh? Prophet and prophetess, great marriage. <laughs> Work together here, team. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we have one prophetess mentioned. That was Anna, who was the one who blessed the baby Jesus in the temple in Luke chapter 2. What about Philip's daughters? What about them? They were called prophets. Yeah, you mean, Anna actually carries over from the Old Testament period into the New Testament period. And then as his daughters would be totally New Testament, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, and you know, who's to say about some of the others, even the Old Testament, who aren't given the official name, but seem to have some of the uh, uh, attributes of this. Well, I've run out of time here this morning, but uh, I think I'd like to pick up with that next time because she has another uniqueness to her. 
which I think is, is very important to the story that we are developing here in the fourth chapter and the fifth chapter of the book of Judges.